Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Lit Service, where we're fans of fiction and purveyors of dodgy writing advice. I'm Caitlin, and my favorite kind of science is the kind I make up. I'm Cameron, and I have a love-hate relationship with computer science. I'm Emily Suveda, and I love math. I love physics too, but I love math more. I'm Aaliyah. I am also a math junkie, so I do math. I do math. That sounds so confident. I just do it. Yeah. <laughs> Coming from my definitely got a Bachelor of Arts over here, but that's okay. Math is cool. So um, this week we have special guest Emily Suvada, author of This Mortal Coil and forthcoming This Cruel Design. Emily's from Australia, but now lives in Portland, Oregon with her husband. She studied math and astrophysics, has worked in finance and education, and as I just said, but I'm going to say again, is the author of Why Sci-Fi This Mortal Coil and its sequel, This Cruel Design, which comes out on October 30th. This Mortal Coil has been shortlisted for the Waterstones Children's Book Prize, the Readings Young Adult Book Prize, and was a finalist Arielis Award. How do you pronounce that, Emily? Yeah, yeah, you got it, Arielis. Yeah. Yes. Okay, we do have a couple of quick announcements before we get started. Kristen is in England, and so Aaliyah is taking her place. Do you want to introduce yourself really quick, Aaliyah? Sure. I love The Color Purple and Hot Chocolate. One of my favorite series is Megan Whalen Turner's The Thief series, and I'm very invested in Star Wars, so I fit in here. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, and then announcement number two, Ben Grange, who was a guest on our last episode, who was an agent at the L. Perkins Agency. He is going to become a special guest more regularly. We'll put out a schedule so you can see what days he's coming in. And if you'd like a critique from Ben, you can let us know. There's some instructions in our submission guidelines. So this week, we are talking about science, technology, engineering, and math in YA and how to write it. So before we get started, I just wanted to talk, especially to Emily, because she's so passionate about this. Why is it important to include these topics in your work? I think that they're important if there's something that's important to you as a writer, but they're also important, like it's important to have them on shelves for readers to, to come across. So when I was growing up, there was a decent amount of sci-fi out there, but there wasn't a huge amount of sci-fi for younger readers, uh, for teen readers, for instance. So I found myself, you know, kind of drifting to science fiction if, if I wanted to read a story that was about a scientist, re drifting to adult science fiction. And so I think for readers who have those passions and just want to immerse themselves in science, if you love science, you want to read it, you want to watch it, you want to have it all over your walls. I think giving young people the opportunity to do that in as many forms as possible is really important. But then if you're a writer and you're passionate about science, I think it's really important to include it in your work as well. I wrote a novel before this mortal coil and I didn't put any science in it. I kind of kept it out of the book thinking, you know, there weren't very many books with a lot of science in them for younger readers. So maybe it wasn't popular and maybe it wouldn't sell. So I kept it out of my first novel. And that was so stifling for me creatively that the novel was just never going to work. And I almost wrote this mortal coil in rebellion, <laughs> you know, just throwing all this science in and being like, I don't care. I don't care if anybody likes it. I'm writing this thing. And that's where a really passionate story came from. And so if, if you're someone who's passionate about science, I think to be true to yourself, you have to include it in your work. I think that's definitely true. And as somebody who doesn't have a really strong science, technology, engineering or math background, I mean, I did all of the things I had to for school but I kind of ran in the other direction as soon as I could. I feel like it's been really helpful for me to have books that incorporate science and technology and math and all those things um, for my kids in a way that's accessible to them. So mm -hmm. it's not just like ramming the facts down their throats, but it's presenting it in a way that as someone who likes to read, I can understand and relate to and be interested in. I would yeah. definitely agree 100%. 
I know growing up, I really wasn't into science that much, but it's because of books. Books written by people who were passionate about STEM that I began to like it. So very important. I think sometimes we divide ourselves into boxes. They're the people who like books and the people who like science and the people who like math. And, and those are all kind of artificial because you can be interested in whatever you want. You don't have to put yourself in a box. Anyway, so if we want to actually move on to the how to actually write it, how do you approach this if you aren't an expert in any of these subjects? My favorite thing to do if there's a subject that I want to include a whole lot of in a book is to find someone who is an expert, but not just an expert, someone who I know is. Because there's a difference between knowing a subject and knowing it well enough that you can explain it well to someone else. And when you're dealing with something you yourself don't understand that you want to put in a book, if you can find someone else who already knows how to explain that thing to a, to a lay audience, as it were, then that can be extremely useful. So you say that's like my go-to. Obviously, like if you just say, if I was going to write a book on snakes in Madagascar, I don't know anyone who's a Madagascar snake expert, so I'd be kind of sunk there. But for my first readout, it's just one of the great things about being at a university is you can find someone who knows and just talk to them. Emily, you had some thoughts about this, about how you find information that actually sounds or is it's better sounding than what you could read from a book and try and regurgitate. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not an expert in genetic engineering. I'm not an expert programmer either, but I bring those aspects into my books because one thing I'm good at is writing a character who sounds like a scientist, who is a scientist. And I think that's really what's crucial in my mind. You know, I was thinking of the example of writing a book about skateboarding, for instance, like you could learn the terms and maneuvers that skateboarders use and you could drop them into your text, but it wouldn't sound nearly as good as if you spent time with skateboarders and listen to how they talk. They have their own lexicon, you know, listen to the way that they discuss how they feel about skateboarding, how they look at the built environment, for instance. And once you incorporate those things into your text, once you have characters that sound genuine, you only need a few details here or there to really make the science feel solid. And so what I focus on is not really the science itself, but the scientific character. Um, and that's something that, you know, I, I went to school with a bunch of scientists. I did a, a math degree that had 10 people in it. So we were just like this bunch of nerds, real concentrated nerdery in that, in that degree. And so I feel quite good writing scientists. Acting like that, you don't need to add in that much of the hard science to really give your book a really genuine feel. I think that's really a smart way to go about it, especially in YA, because most YA is, well, not most, but like one of the things that people look for in YA when they're looking like agents and editors is the voice. And I think that if you try and manufacture something like how you think a scientist might sound versus like actually listening to real scientists and how they talk, mm -hmm. people can hear that. I mean, if you have a voice driven character who just is curious and interested in the world, I mean, that comes across. Yeah, a lot of people tend to fall back on stereotypes when they're writing about scientist characters or, or very STEM focused characters. And that's something that I encountered a lot growing up. And that's it's harmful to write any stereotype, no matter what stereotype it is, because people internalize those stereotypes and think they should be erratic and asocial if they're a scientist. But that's not the case at all. Scientists are, they're questioning, they analyze, they hypothesize, they experiment. That's how they look at the world every minute of every day. Um, and that's, that's what 
I try to bring into my characters. Awesome. So um, when you're writing a book that centers around science or maybe even something you made up that's not real science, how much needs to be real and how much can you just make up? I would say that there's a sweet spot you want to aim for when writing them. You want to put enough information that the audience isn't confused that they at least can kind of believe that they're becoming experts too. But if you put in too much, too much lingo, um, too many hard facts, then the audience can com- become confused and kind of overwhelmed. There's that learning curve, just like with anything else with world building, you want to hit right there at the peak. Yeah. And I also think that it depends on your audience. If you're writing toward an audience, like hard sci-fi audience, then you might be able to get more into jargon and stuff. But I think generally, and Emily, I think you wanted to talk about this a little bit, that when you're talking or explaining something that you should be able to do it in a way that anyone can understand. Yeah, I think that's really the, the key to figuring out whether or not you really do understand something. And that's how easily you can explain it to somebody else. If you have to use jargon, if you have to use lingo, then you don't really know what you're talking about. I think that most of the time jargon uh, for any industry is uh, a placeholder for really in-depth thinking. You know, I I think it's making up for real depth of knowledge. I'm I'm really anti-jargon. I'm not a big fan. But Yeah, I think if you can explain something in clear terms to somebody who has very little familiarity with it, then that means you truly understand what you're talking about. Um, Like that's a principle of engineering design is whether or not you can explain something clearly to someone who isn't an expert. And if you can't, whatever you're explaining is probably too complex and shouldn't exist or you don't understand it as well as you should. So explaining something sciencey to a reader. If you're an expert in that field, you should be able to do it in simple language. I remember when I was in high school, I took a physics class and our teacher said, this is too difficult a concept for you guys to learn yet because you haven't learned the math yet. And so I'm teaching you the wrong thing, but it's a good placeholder for until you can learn the real thing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you get that a lot at school. I feel like that's going to be true in a lot of any, any, isn't that true of any discipline though? You, you, you learn using some kind of abstract metaphor because, I mean, I don't know. I'm not, I'm no theoretical physicist, but I, got, I was under the impression that we can only go so far and then it gets to, well, we don't actually know why this works this way, but we're going to work from here because this is what we do know. I'm, I'm curious, was that electron shells or was that special relativity? Do you remember what it was? I, nope. I'm going to say it was ele- <laughs> electron shells. Yeah. All blocked out. <laughs> I, I remember I remember in in seventh grade I had oh I can't remember what her name was but she had a doctorate in chemistry and she was teaching my seventh grade chemistry class and she went over electron shells and the Heisenberg uncertainty principle oh wow and said well I say went over touched it just briefly enough to say if this makes any sense to you come talk to me because no one else is going to get it essentially <laughs> I mean she she said it in a much more constructive way oh, I'm sure. than I'm than I'm able to recall at this point <laughs> But it was it was definitely. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. well, I was talking to Kristen about this and she came up with this as far as the information that you give or like how accurate it is, that it's kind of like the Martian versus Back to the Future. So the Martian, she says, is basically science disguised as a story. And then Back to the Future has a flux capacitor. So those are two different ways of handling it. You have lots and lots of real certifiable science versus being really confident, confident about one fake thing that you present to the reader and everybody kind of 
agrees or their suspension of belief is belief is suspended. There we go. So that they they can get on board with that one thing. I feel like Star Wars kind of does this too. It's like the magical approach to science versus 70s, which is all really based. Well, I mean, I'm a lay reader and so it sounds all really cool. I don't know how <laughs> real it is. And actually this mortal coil reminded me of CRISPR gene splicing, which I don't know if that's real. Or if that's what you based it on, Emily. Um, so it's it's based on this, this similar concept of, of editing genes um, in this mortal coil, uh, splicing, like the magical component of my world is that splicing doesn't work. Um, and so it's gene masking instead is the technology in my world, which is important yeah. for a few plot reasons and may have some explanation um, through the rest of the series. But uh, But basically speaking, yeah. Basically, it, you can think of it as CRISPR. See, I sound so smart. I'm like, CRISPR, I know what that is. <laughs> um, <laughs> I actually got that straight I, right before I read this mortal coil. My husband had just read uh, some article about it. And I was like, oh, this sounds like this sounds like Emily's book. There's um, amazing stuff happening in it. You know, um, there's people hacking their DNA in their garages these days, um, you know, injecting themselves with CRISPR designed to knock out myostatin, which is it's a chemical that stops you from growing muscles forever. You know, your body can grow muscles, but it also knows when to stop growing muscles. You know, if you have an on switch, there's an on one, off on switch and an off one as well. Um, so people are injecting themselves with CRISPR to delete the gene that creates myostatins so that they can grow bigger muscles. And this is happening right now, just at home, hacking their genes permanently. <laughs> Another thing, I think Cameron, you wanted to talk about um, science and how clear it needs to be. Um, when it becomes integral to the plot. This is probably revealing some of my prejudice towards fantasy, but I think a lot of the times, whether, whether it's a magic system or whether it's science, you have to foreshadow and explain enough so that when you have a plot point that depends on science or magic, that the reader can predict what's about to happen correctly. Like Not necessarily that they would think to predict it, but if they go back and look and say, so what's a good example? Um, <laughs> someone save me. Um, Aaliyah, start talking, quick. <laughs> Star Wars. You get some really simple ones, but I think it's kind of important. So like in A New Hope, they tell us, if you shoot a torpedo down the hole, it will blow up the ship. They shoot a torpedo down the hole, and the ship blows up. It's an example of, they set up the expectation and they executed on it. A counterexample to this, I'm going to get some hate for this one. In The Last Jedi, I do not deny that the Lightspeed Ram with the capital ship is an amazing shot visually. Story-wise, it's problematic. Because if light speed ramming was that effective, why aren't there droid piloted ships just doing that all the time? You see what I'm you see what I'm saying? We shouldn't have expected, given given the other like some 20 other hours of film of Star Wars, we wouldn't have predicted that that's what would happen because no one's ever done it before, right? So in my mind, I don't like it when narratives do that because it takes me out because it's like well the, the writers are just changing the rules to set up a cool shot so the next thing i think that is difficult for writers especially new writers is balancing between the story and info dumping so what are your suggestions on how to mix your plot with some info dumping or with as little as possible or how, how do you approach that i'm guilty of quite a lot of info dumps it's just it's part of my writing style. Um, but what I try to do is keep them short. So unfortunately, there's just so much in my world that 
in order to explain the science, you have to, you can assume that somebody knows science already is going to know what you're talking about. So you have to go back a couple steps and throw in a few lines to get everybody up to speed, which is what turns it into an info dump instead of a, a sentence or two a lot of the time. Mostly what I like to do is be really tight with my language. So Every info dump starts off as three paragraphs and then I'll like scrape it back to one paragraph really tight and then build it out with a little bit of voice and make sure that every word really needs to be there and is important. And then I make sure that it's really crucial to the story. I really make sure through the whole book that I'm not wasting my reader's time so that when a reader comes to an info dump, they'll read it because it's, they know it's not any longer than it needs to be and because they know I'm not wasting their time, that it's going to get used at some point later on and they should keep reading and paying attention. So I think it's establishing that trust and a firm hand on the reader to make sure you're guiding their attention and, and you're not leading them down rabbit holes that aren't going to contribute to the plot. You say your story is about, is it gene repression? Uh, it's gene masking. Gene gene, masking. It's basically gene editing. Yeah, okay, basically. Okay. Well, so saying if your story is about gene editing, then you don't want to like throw in a discourse on orbital mechanics because yes, just because yes. you have an astrophysicist in the room doesn't mean your reader wants to read about. Well, you don't even want to throw in a discourse on gene editing necessarily. You want to avoid as much philosophizing and discoursing as you can, depending on the story. Mine's a mine's a plot driven story, so mm -hmm. I try to avoid info dumps if they're just going to be me kind of hand waving uh, and talking about a theme or an, or an idea or something. I'm only going to throw in an info dump if it's going to be plot, basically. Otherwise, it's just me talking to myself. I think yeah. that's a really good rule to follow. And I mean, I come at it from a world building perspective where I'm not going to add in a bunch of random information because it just overloads your reader. And, and so making it plot relevant and then establishing that trust, like you were saying, I think are two things that are really important. When I was first working on Last Star Burning, my editor, who's also Emily's editor, yay. Um, Hi, Sarah. <laughs> she said, we need to get all of the relevant sciencey information because mine is actually sci-fi too, which is funny. Mm -hmm. coming from mm -hmm. me. She said, we need it within the first two chapters. And so there is a little bit of input dumping that happens. Um, yeah. It has to, but it's all plot driven. And as Cameron might want to talk about, because you're the one who brought it up, it creates questions that make the reader want to learn more rather than overwhelming them. This is where I was going to bring up my Jurassic Park example, where you have, they have, if you, if you think about it in terms of the structure, there is this massive info dump, the, the process that they're using to clone the dinosaurs, <laughs> but, but it's pulled off in such a way. So you have this, the great scene where they see the dinosaurs for the first time. And you know, when the characters asked, how did you do it? And the guy says, I'll show you. And so they, they insert the info dump at the point where the characters and if the audience is ever going to be interested enough to listen, it's now, right? To have the info dump. And then they do it, you know, and they do different ways to make it entertaining. You know, they don't just have a scientist stand up and explain it. They put it in. It's an entertaining-ish video. You get the other DNA guy. Anyway, you see my point, though, is that it's not just, it's not some guy in a lab coat standing there and saying, and this is what we did with the needle and the amber, and it's very boring. They took pains to make it an entertaining thing to watch. Well, and even when they do get kind of technical with the scientist in the white lab coat, they add in the scary music and they're like, velociraptors that are all going to <laughs> eat you. The whole thing. It's like, what are these? They're raptors. Crichton does the same thing in the book. So there'll be like three pages on how to conduct a specific kind of data analysis in the book. Yes. You want to read that because 
it's the middle of Jurassic Park. Yeah, yeah. It, there's a fantastic section in the book where they're talking about the system that they use to keep track of how many dinosaurs they have and where they are. That's what and I'm talking about. I have yeah. Enough of a computer science background that I noticed. Oh, they made a mistake I made in my intro computer science class, and that's why they're not <laughs> keeping track of all of them. And it was yeah. well, first it made me feel really smart. <laughs> But then I saw it coming, and I and then I I'm also pretty sure like it was written in a way that even if you didn't have a computer science background, you understand what was going on. It's like oh, if you're assuming there are ten dinosaurs and you only look for ten dinosaurs, you're going to stop looking when you find ten dinosaurs, even if there's twelve, right? You can understand that without. Okay. Well, and that's a, a very important point because even if you do have to info dump, there's no reason to make it unpleasant. Take yes. as many pains as you can to make it as easy to swallow as possible. It's a fantastic moment of dawning horror because it's like, mm -hmm. I can't remember exactly. It's like, we expect there to be 120 dinosaurs in the park. And the guy says, well, are you making sure it keeps counting beyond what it expects? They're like, no, let me make that change. And they make the change and they hit the button. And then and I don't remember how it's represented in the, the book, but in my mind, I had a vision of yeah. it's not 120, it's not 130, it's not 140, it's not 150. And like, oh. <laughs> and there's charts. There's charts in the book. I love it so much. It's, it's actually my favorite book of all time. Aaliyah, you had some thoughts about making it easier for your reader by naming things in a nice way. Well, one thing I really appreciate as a reader is when the author makes use of something called affordances. And basically the idea with an affordance is by looking at the object or by hearing the name, you can somehow begin to tell what it does. So to bring up Star Wars again, because Star Wars does this excellently, you picture a lightsaber. Just by reading that, you kind of have an idea that it's going to be some sort of a flaming sword or a comm link or basically anything they do. And so that has the really interesting effect of just trimming your language. You can t cut down a paragraph and then just name something really sharply. I thought Red Rising did a really good job with that. A lot of the tech names are Kennings. It's just two nouns stuck together. And so you get an idea between what they are. I can't remember what any of them are off the top of my head right now. But I think Cinder <laughs> by Marissa Meyer does that too. We should probably move on to the second portion of our podcast. So just a quick review of how we do things. We try to keep things from being prescriptive, which means we will tell you where we see either problems or things that aren't clear or things that we don't feel like landed very well. But we'll try not to tell you how to fix it. If you'd like to check out the text of this submission, it'll be on our website, which is litservicepodcast.wixsite.com slash litnation. If you would like a first chapter critique from us, you can find our submission guidelines on that same website. So we're going to start off with things that we like about this submission. There's some really beautiful language and it's tonally, I, I know exactly what this book is going to be like. It's very mm -hmm. dark. It's kind of surreal. Um, I know what to expect with the plot. I mean, people get killed within the first couple of pages and there's lots of blood and it's very graphically described. So like, I kind of know what I'm getting into just from this first chapter. I would definitely second that, right? When you start, you can just feel the feeling this book has. It carries through on its promises very well. I like the the tone that it's setting. It has a distinctive mood, even just within the first couple of pages. Mm -hmm. I felt like the world felt big that we were just seeing the tip of the iceberg. And that always excites me as a reader. Um, I felt like there was more to this world that we had yet to discover. And I also felt a sense of suspense. So I didn't know what was going to happen uh, in the confrontation that was occurring. I didn't know how it was going to end, who was going to live, who was going to die. And that's exciting. Being able to build that suspense in a first chapter is no easy feat. I mean, I know I'm going to um, get some pushback on this in a little bit, <laughs> but... I really liked how it jumped into an immediate, I don't understand all the nuances of the conflict, but there's immediate conflict on the page 
where it's like, oh, we have trespassers and guns and people are shooting at each other and people are dying. And at least to me, there's enough of a motivation between I'm protecting this girl, they want her, and I don't want that to happen. To me, it felt like it was iceberg, that there was lots of, that there was a story behind what was going on, but I knew enough of I'm protecting her, they're going to have to go through me, that there, there was enough of understanding for it to carry emotional weight. Do you want to explain what iceberging is really quick? Sure. Iceberging is the idea that, because you know, like with, with an iceberg in the ocean, you can only see 10% of it as large as that massive floating thing that's like the Titanic is. There's actually, it's like even larger underwater. The idea of iceberging is that you can just kind of give a throwaway mention of something. So like in this one, what's a good example? It touches a lot on, there's just a very couple very brief mentions that psychics who have gone away to this place have ended up dead. And it doesn't go into details a whole lot. There's talk about like one of them got, I can't remember. It was said three of them have ended up dead and something specific happened to one of them, but we don't get any details beyond that. Or even why they're there, which is Or even why they were there at all or or why they would, we know that. Mm It's supposedly an honor to be there, but we don't know why or what. But the point is, is it introduces this idea that there are psychics and there's this place and people keep dying. That's where we're going to try to take her. There's no long explanation of, and this is where this place came from, and this is why it was built, and this is who lives here now, and this is why a psychic would want to, or would want or not want to be there, blah, 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 blah. It's just enough information to pique the curiosity and say there's more here to learn, so stay tuned. The other nice thing that it can do is is a writer cheat is you don't actually have to know what's under the water (laughs) the writer doesn't have to have worked out why this place was built or who the last 10 inhabitants were you just have to know enough to give the illusion that you know it depends on how plot heavy it is that's true that's true if it becomes if something is plot central obviously you want the more plot central something is the more you want to have it worked out but the point is having just read this section it feels like i think we've all mentioned the world felt really big and it's possible the author has figured out every minute detail of the world but it's also possible that it's all smoke and mirrors and it doesn't matter as long as we can't tell that's true i was gonna add i even felt we saw some iceberg when we first saw finch i really appreciated the descriptions there and i'm very intrigued by her as a character because who brings a gift to the ghosts and you can clearly tell that there's something harder to her than she looks. Great name too, Finch. So let's move on to things that might need a second look. I think I noticed in all of our notes that we're not quite sure what the point of view is. I was going to go with Omniscient, which as I have mentioned on the podcast more than once, I do not care for Omniscient, so I might not be the best person to say anything about it. But I was a little bit confused about where we were and how people were feeling and, and the distance that Omniscience gives to a a piece of writing made it really hard for me to feel like how the characters were reacting to what was going on. Obviously, we had the main character, Gideon, who's very angry because he keeps swearing all over the place. And so I'm assuming that is a representation of anger. And then we have the girl who's hanging back and we have the guy who betrayed them. So I understand that there are, there are really high stakes here. But I didn't really feel the characters feeling those high stakes, if that makes sense. Yeah, the point of view was jarring for me when there was what I call a head bop. So I thought we were following Gideon and then we head bop to somebody else and kind of followed, you know, the narrator said how they were feeling or what they were thinking, basically. And I felt like we jumped heads. And every piece of writing advice I've come across says, limit your head bobs. So maybe one, like just keep it in one per scene 
or don't go back and forth, don't do it at all. But I found that really jarring because I was settling in for one particular story and then found myself moving around. And then that just kind of makes me lose trust in the writer because I'm not sure if they're guiding me as firmly as I'd like to be guided through the story. I would agree. I like the intensity of the scene where where everything is just frozen. There's so much tension mounting. And as a reader, I can definitely feel that. But head bopping back and forth. And without the, the dialogue tags, it was just a little, I was a little confused about what was going on because it is mostly dialogue. And I, I feel like I would be more comfortable if, if there was a little more description in there to kind of ground me. There is some really beautiful description, but I feel like it was so lyrical and beautiful that I didn't actually know what was going on, unfortunately. There is a lot that happens in this beginning section where I got so caught up in the words that I was like, wait a second, there's blood and something happened and I don't know. Yeah, I, I felt the same way. I really I really wish that some of the language was just scaled back to be pragmatic language, to just have sentences like, he walked to the car. I think, you know, even if you go to the fanciest restaurant and you have this really elaborate meal, you're still going to have bread and water at your table. And without them, the meal isn't going to be as good. Like, you need grounding. You, you can have lyrical, evocative writing, and you can have a constant use of metaphor and simile, but you need to be very clear on the crucial details, which is why someone's doing what they're doing and what it is that they're doing. Yeah, I think you, you never want the reader to be confused. You need that bread and water in your writing constantly. The thought was running through my head that maybe you guys can contradict me, that it feels like that that's a good place to be in, though. Like, if you can do the lyrical great stuff, then it's just, it's okay. It's okay to just drop, you know, it doesn't all have to be artisan cinnamon rolls. You can just drop some white and you can do that because you've been doing artisan cinnamon rolls, the risk of extending this metaphor to the breaking point. You don't want to only eat garnish. <laughs> yeah, the skill, the true skill, like I think a lot of people think that the skill lies with the lyrical language, but I think the skill lies with the balance. I think a lot of writers can throw themselves all into lyrical or they can throw themselves all into pragmatic language, but I think true skill and artistry comes with maintaining that balance. I think part of that too is genre. I believe this one is supposed to be new adult. And I think if you're writing a book that is sitting in the literary fiction section, you can get away with a little bit more. But if you're writing a plot-driven book, you don't want your reader to spend 10 minutes on the first page just trying to unravel what happens. If you're, re if you're writing a book that's meant to be analyzed and picked apart, then that's great. But it depends on what kind of book you're writing. And there are so many beautiful lines in here. Probably one of my favorite lines. I don't know. I just loved where it talks about how there was oil on his smile and the oil was rancid. I thought that was beautiful. And so I'm really loving the feel of this. And I'm willing to overlook a lot if the feel of the book is right. I think it's it's got a very good feel with it. So just I think with some more grounding, I would I would love it. I did notice there is a lot of dialogue and a lot of it isn't tagged. And so I lost track of who was talking. A couple of times. Too. And then Cameron, you mentioned something about names. Just that. I mean, so this is this is something we've talked about in our writing group a lot, that I'm just terrible at keeping track of named characters. <laughs> so for my poor adult brain, <laughs> there were a lot of named characters introduced in a short span. So it was a little hard for me to keep track of. I mean, combined with, so for me, for me, I didn't have trouble keeping track of of the blocking as much as it seems like the rest of you did, but I had a little bit of issues keeping track of who was who. But having one character's named Fletcher and one character's named Finch, I love either of those names on their own. Introduced really close to each other, they're both fluch names, 
and I got them mixed up. I think for me, um, I remember somebody mentioned there wasn't much in in terms of like internal reaction. So I don't think it was really the blocking that I was missing. It was why characters were doing what they were doing. So they might do a thing and it would say that they would do this thing in a certain way, but I'd be like, but what motivation has led the character to do this? I couldn't guess at it because the omniscient was so so high up and so separated from the character's internal point of view. I wasn't sure what it was they were feeling, if they were reacting in an angry way or an instinctive way or why. It was really the why for me that was missing in terms of what was happening. It was it was why. I think going along with that, it's kind of a, a rough place to start because there. this feels like a linchpin moment where... There's a lot of stuff happening and I don't understand why, because I don't understand the world. And I mean, if you're going to have someone get shot point blank and everybody reacting really strongly to it in the first chapter of your book, there needs to be a reason. Like Six of Crows does this where mm-hmm. you have, it's like within the first three chapters, Kaz and Inej are like trying to, I, they're trying to get information of somebody, I think. And Kaz ends up shooting the traitor, which, so it's like a very similar situation. But the point of those scenes is to show the characters and not to introduce the plot. And mm-hmm. so I got a whole lot from Six of Crows because I'm like, oh, Kaz is this kind of person and Inej is this kind of person. And this is the way that they they operate and this is the world they live in. But I feel like we're bringing up plot stuff here that I'm going to have to remember later. And because there's so much of it, I don't feel like I'm going to remember. And it kind of makes me stressed out as a reader. I I try not to include a plot point until 10% of the way through the book. You have to fill it with exciting stuff somehow, but people aren't ready for plot in the first few chapters. I don't think Um, I have one, one more, but it's a little prescriptive. (laughs) Just say prescriptive alert. Prescriptive alert. Chapter one is not chapter one. Chapter one is a prologue and it didn't, it didn't work for me. Um, If I, if I had picked up this in a bookstore, I would have skipped it. It left me feeling a little confused and I wasn't sure what the tone was. I would cut it. (laughs) (laughs) I enjoyed it, but I can definitely see where it could use some tweaking. Mm. I I liked some of the contrasts that were in it. Like you have these beautiful sentences talking about beautiful flesh and then cracking bones, which I thought was super cool. Mm -hmm. But I did feel like the length of it and the fact that it wasn't grounded was difficult for me. Any other thoughts, guys? Cameron, you're looking quite pensive. I don't know. Just overall, it doesn't feel like I had as much trouble with the submission as you guys did. And I'm <laughs> trying to figure out why. I mean, we know, we know. for those of you who know me, this is very on brand for me. <laughs> yeah. the kind of thing I love to read. So maybe that's just it. I actually, I liked it a whole lot. I mean, I liked the idea of it and I liked the language of it. I think that it's a little bit, I mean, it just needs a little bit of work mm-hmm. is what it comes down to. As far as critiques go, Everything that we're saying are little tweaks. They're not huge things. It's not about like saying you have to start over. No. So do we have anything else we want to say? I enjoyed it too. And and thanks for the submission. It's always good to have a new read. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. I think it sounds like a really interesting story. Um, it's it's one that left me wanting to, you know, I was frustrated about no, not knowing what was happening because I wanted to know what happened because I was intrigued. I wanted to, I wanted to keep going with the story. So yeah, I enjoyed it as well. Okay, well then that brings us to the end of this 
podcast. Remember, if you'd like to submit your first chapter for Esther Boutique, you can check out our website for submission details. If you want to watch us, if you're listening to the podcast instead of watching us live, you can always go check out our YouTube channel and watch the funny faces we make while we're talking about books. If you want to talk to us, you can find us on Twitter at Lit Service or on Facebook and Instagram as Lit Service Podcast. We hope you'll check out our newly hatching forum where you can check chat. I'm really struggling here. You can chat with other querying authors and hopefully you can commiserate and also find good things that are happening because querying sucks, but writers are fun. So hanging out with other writers is always good. Um, if you enjoyed this episode, please give us a star rating and a review on whichever podcast app you use or on YouTube. It helps other people to find the show for Lit Service. Thanks for listening and we will see you in two weeks. Bye.